The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, we have breaking news on three of the biggest legal stories we've been covering on Court TV, including the prosecution's effort to change Kyle Rittenhouse's bail, major rulings from the judge presiding over the George Floyd trial, and an exclusive interview with Emma Daybell, whose mother died just weeks before Chad Daybell married doomsday cult mom Lori Vallow. This is the Court TV podcast with Vinnie Politan. Welcome to the Court TV podcast. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. And this podcast will be a little different than many of the ones we've done in the past because today we're counting down three big developments in three big trials that we are tracking and covering on your front row seat to justice, which is the Court TV network. And we're going to begin with a story that we've been covering for over a year now, and we are getting closer to a trial. It's going to happen at some point. And I'm talking about the case of the so-called doomsday couple, Lori Vallow-Daybell and her husband, Chad. They are married, uh, but both in jail in separate counties in Idaho. They're accused uh, in charges related to the deaths of Lori's children. Not the first marriage for either one of them, but uh, Lori had two children who were found dead and buried in her new husband's backyard, but no one's been charged with the murder. No one's been charged with the murder. But there's more to the story. As I said, for neither one of these two was it their first marriage, and that's because both of their prior spouses are dead. Now, Lori's prior spouse was shot and killed by her brother, who is also dead, but that's another podcast for another day. Um, And Chad Daybell's wife... Tammy also died. She tragically died about two weeks before he married Lori Vallow Daybell. Now, her body was subsequently exhumed, and there was an autopsy performed on that body. But this has taken place more than a year ago. So now we're in a place where What exactly is going on in the investigation into the death of Chad Daybell's wife, Tammy? Well, we don't exactly know. We know it's sort of an open investigation. Her death was originally reported as natural causes. But with everything else that has transpired with his marriage to Lori, finding dead bodies in his backyard, and then, you know, the timing of it all with Chad Daybell marrying his new wife just after his wife of many years, who he raised a family with, died in their home, all of a sudden it's a little suspicious, to say the least. So there's an autopsy report, but it has not been made public. Not to us. It hasn't been filed in court. The investigators haven't spoken about it. But there's someone else who hasn't seen that report, and that is the family of Tammy Daybell. And when I say family, yes, Chad, right, Uh, but he's in jail. But her children, her parents. So Tammy Daybell dies and the body's exhumed and the family has no idea what these autopsy results are. Well, Court TV legal correspondent Chanley Painter 
reached out to the family of Chad Daybell and an opportunity to speak with Tammy and Chad's daughter, Emma Daybell. Let's listen to a part of that conversation. So I wanted just to reach out to you, Emma, and see if you would give a comment um, and ask if you have also received those autopsy results. No, I have not. Okay, so have you requested it or requested to see them at all? Yes, so last Thursday I saw the same press release that I think everybody else did. It caught me by surprise. And I called the Fremont County Sheriff's Office. It's a little complicated. Our our address says that it's in Rexburg, but we're about two miles into Fremont County versus Madison County. So the Madison or the Fremont County Sheriff is who I called. And I left a voicemail at their office. I just wanted to know if I could see my mother's autopsy results. I I want to see them before they're released to the media. And Sheriff Humphreys returned my call, and he told me that if I work with Fremont County's head detective, I would be able to discuss it with them. But I was also told that he would not even be able to call me back until later the next week. And my brothers and sisters and I have been on pins and needles for over a year waiting to know what this report says. But I was told that the sheriff himself cannot let my mother's own children see an autopsy report until we all meet together with a detective and answer all of their questions. Wow. Talk about playing hardball. And, and I don't think Emma Daybell and her siblings are suspected in anything. But it seems like, wow, they really want to get some information and they're working this investigation, playing hardball. So let's bring in Court TV anchor Ted Rollins. Ted, I am not very comfortable as I, as I listen to this sort of negotiation. I'm sure there's a reason for it, and they probably need it to help build the case in any way. But it's, it's still, to me, it, it just doesn't seem right to these kids. Yeah, uh, one would think it would be a very clean request. Can I see my mother's autopsy? Of course. Um, here it is, or we'll send it to you. Or you know, there's something else going on here. One of one of many things, but you you can look at it and say they're just concerned about the family. They're concerned about what may be in this autopsy. They want to be there to help guide them through it, to explain maybe the medical terms involved. Um, that can absolutely be the motivation here. Or it's something else. It's that they want them and they want their undivided attention. They want to be able to interview them, ask them questions about not only Tammy Davis, but about their father. I tend to, I, I mean, I, I hope I'm wrong, but I believe um, that it's likely the the latter and that they, they need more evidence against Chad Dava. We've seen this type, uh, uh, we, we've seen this, kind of uh, come up before. There's a feeling when you look at this case that they're struggling. They're struggling for facts to come through with, with further charges against Chad Bell and Lori Bell. And this is possibly another way to get more information. Okay, I want to listen to more of um, Chanley Painter's conversation with Emma because here um, it, it's interesting to find out how they first learned that their own mother was exhumed. Let's take a listen. And then if you could, just how has this impacted you and your family? 
So it's, I cannot even adequately communicate the amount of pain this has caused my family. It's been over 14 months, and my mom's parents are still living, and they also are not allowed to see their daughter's autopsy report. They find out in the news just the same as everybody else does. I, I don't think this is common knowledge, but the Fremont County Sheriff's Office reported the exhumation of my mother's body in December 2019, two weeks after the fact, through a public press release from the Rexburg Police Department. That's a city in a different county. They did not sit us down or anything and prepare us or let us know what was going on, but we found out that our mother had been exhumed and we had no idea. Uh, again, this is fascinating. At that point, Chad Daybell is not in jail, right? So he's still free. So I can kind of understand what was going on there. But this is what I want to focus on, Ted. In cases like this, I think it's always difficult to convince or have the children believe that one parent is responsible in any way with the death of another parent. Okay? So investigators, and I've seen it in so many trials that I've covered, that even if the, the DNA evidence is overwhelming, nine times out of ten, the children don't want to believe and do not believe that one parent had anything to do with the death of another. But the parents of that parent. So Tammy Daybell's parents are still alive. I think those are two people who um, would have a much more open mind if there is, if, if there is any evidence that Chad Daybell had something to do with the death of Tammy and might be a better source for investigators to get inside information. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, the other part of the equation, though, is um, if you do get the kids on your side, that's the lottery. I mean, you're hitting that when you hit out of the park. If you can um, establish that the defendant's own children don't believe him. But you're right. It's human nature. You don't, you want to believe your father killed your mother, especially since they lived through that period of time and they supported their father. Um, and I, I, I think the bottom line is they're grasping a little bit, this prosecution team. And I can just imagine John Pryor blowing a gasket in front of this judge during the next hearing um, as he defends Chad Daybell. Okay, so I want to play one more piece of, of Chanley's exclusive interview uh, that only Court TV got. And to me, this part really fascinates me, but is a cliffhanger. Take a listen. I'm sure you have a feeling of what it says. I, I have a pretty good idea about what this whole situation has been heartbreaking. My dad's in jail. My mom's dead. It feels like we're all alone, and I just want to see this document, but... All I can say is that there's a lot of false information circulating in the news about the passing of my mother. And could you go into detail about false information? Uh, not right now. I'm curious okay. for this autopsy results, the autopsy results to be released first. There it was. The, the, the false information about the death of her mother. She knows something that is not public knowledge because we'd be talking about it uh, and, and ted i can't imagine I, I have no idea what that false information could potentially be yeah and what what side does it go on i would think that the again to your point earlier the daughter of tammy daughter of chad is saying that the media is is portraying her father 
in a, in a poor light. And there's more to this that you don't know, and it's going to come out. That would be my gut. Um, if it's the other way, then that would be a bombshell. Absolutely. And I'm wondering, because, you know, we, we heard Chad Daybell in some recorded conversations talking about the health of Tammy, and she didn't like doctors, and she wasn't feeling well, and that was kind of the way he was going. I wonder if they could back that up. I mean, this, this is... This is fascinating, and we will continue to follow it. There will be a trial, folks, and Court TV, of course, will be your front row to all of it with our gavel-to-gavel coverage. Uh, Court TV anchor Ted Rowland's busy every day. He has so many jobs at Court TV. We appreciate your time, Ted. Thank you, Vinny. All right, folks, when we come back, I said we're counting down three of our biggest trials with big developments in all of them. Coming up next, the case involving Kyle Rittenhouse, the so-called Kenosha killer, the Kenosha shooter. He claims self-defense. He's out on bond and the prosecutor dragging him back into court. Michael Ayala will join me and we'll talk about the latest in that case. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. Kyle Rittenhouse. He was 17 years old when he went from his home in Illinois and went to Kenosha, Wisconsin in the middle of the riots. While he was in Wisconsin, a, a friend of his uh, helped him get a, a gun, a rifle, and he then went uh, in the midst of the riots and was, uh, you know, doing whatever he was doing. I mean, that's what the trial's going to be all about. I don't want to, <laughs> you know, say one way or the other. But at the end of the day, what we do know is that he shot three people two ki and killed two of them. And he is now on trial for murder. So he was locked up and ended up raising $2 million and got out on bond and, and was free, secured by $2 million. Now, Kyle Rittenhouse doesn't have $2 million, but this story, which is the most polarizing case I've covered in the history of Court TV, um, he has a very uh, strong backing by many uh, people who believe enough in him that they actually donated money to have him, uh, you know, get out of jail while waiting for his trial. So while he's out, prosecutors uh, brought a motion in front of the court trying to get his uh, bail raised and to have him rearrested because apparently the prosecutor sent some investigators to his address and they went to the apartment and he doesn't live there anymore. And he did not provide his new address to the court. So as a result of all of that, he was brought into court and there was a hearing that was very, very heated. And I would like to uh, bring in Court TV anchor Michael Ayala as we talk about that hearing. Michael, great to see you. All right, Vinny. Thanks for having me again. You know, there was testimony and, and, and conversation during the course of that bail hearing that came out. And I've spoken to other guests on my show. And they say, these defense attorneys say, it is pretty common that criminal defendants will move and not give their forwarding address. And the next time they're in court, Many times they will provide that address. And the guests I've, I have asked and had on my show have never seen a case where a prosecutor wanted someone arrested for that and wanted the bail increased for that. And they say it's, it's a very 
um, mild thing that happens is very common and defendants, you know, as long as they provide it when they're asked and they show up to court, it's not a big deal. What do you think is going on here? All right. There's a, there's a few things going on here, Vinny. Number one, this is not just your average ordinary case, right? This is a murder case. This is a case where a guy is alleged to, uh, to have shot someone, actually shot two people, injured a third person. As a matter of fact, both Gage Grosskreutz and the family of Anthony Yuba were at the hearing. But the main issue with the prosecutors here is that um, and they made this argument in addition to the fact that he didn't provide his address as he was supposed to, um, was that he seems to be thumbing his nose at authority because they, re they were really upset by the fact that he was seen out drinking in a bar. Um, he was hanging out with people known as okay. the let, boys. Let, let, uh -huh. let, let's, start, well, let's start with the bar. Let's start with the okay. bar. Let's okay. He, he was 18 and he was with his mom in the middle of the day getting a beer and having lunch. How is that thumbing your nose? I, I, I just think, you know, okay. and I, and Here we go. I, I, mean, I just I, think that I, there's I, a little overreaction to that whole thing, to, well, to having un, a drink. Until you and it's find, legal. Until you find And it was legal. Out. Yes, it was legal. Nothing illegal about it, which is why the judge ultimately didn't take any action on this issue. But I can tell you this. He had on a, a shirt that had an expletive that seemed to be thumbing his nose at the fact that he was free and it was free as... And you can you can use your imagination exactly to the next word. Um, he was flashing what is known to be a, a, a white power sign. He was taking pictures with known members of a group called the Proud Boys, which have made the news as a result of other incidents and things going on in the news, which we won't get into right now. But uh, we kind of know what, what their politics are. So the judge even responded to that issue by saying, hey, um, he put out an order that said, I don't want to see you around any groups of people that um, discriminate based on race, religion, whatever. So he, he recognized that that was an issue. So it was clearly an issue. He just refused to go the next step because in Wisconsin, Vinny, in order to actually uh, put out a, an arrest warrant for someone while they're on bond, you have to have evidence that they committed some other serious crime. That did not exist here. To raise the bail, he didn't think, and he, he mentioned exactly what you're talking about. He said about 10% of the folks who come in front of him um, generally forget to, to update their address. He, he's never you know, raised their bond or had them arrested or anything of that nature. But I'll put this out there, Vinny. This is a very different case. And the prosecution made this argument. This guy is charged with murder. The money that was put up didn't come out of his family's pocket. It came from other sources, and we can debate what those sources are. Um, they want to make sure that the witnesses and everyone else, the community is safe. This was a crime involving a gun. So they have legitimate arguments there. So they were, you know, interesting arguments on both sides. Yeah, where the money came from, I've never heard that argument. That To me, that's seemingly irrelevant, whether your parents put up a house, a friend puts up a house, or you put up your own money, or if you raise money. Oh, you got to be kidding me, Vinny. At the end of the day, if the money is coming from my parents put the money up on the house, is that not more likely to keep me from fleeing a jurisdiction? I would think you have more skin in the game. But that's not a con uh, there, there's never a condition where the money comes from. There, there's just that the no, money has to be That's not a condition, Vinny, but at the end of the day, you have to admit more skin in the game means that you're more likely to do what they want you to do. Well, he's, he's also shown up for every hearing. He also voluntarily surrendered himself and tried to surrender himself at the scene, but was shooed away by the police. 
So I mean, it's a it's a it's a combination of all that. I just I just get the feel when I when I watch these hearings, it, it just seems like the prosecutor is treating this differently than other cases. Like the case, I mean, there's another case in Wisconsin out of Kenosha, uh, Crystal Kaiser. Other people raised money for her to get out on bond, and it and I don't see it as an issue. It's she's out on bond. She she was able to raise the money somehow, some way. Um, let me ask you this though. This was the other thing. The defense tried to. Um, attempted to enter an agreement with the prosecutor in saying, listen, we'll give you the address, but let's agree that it will be sealed. And the prosecutor was adamant before he got into the court, into the courtroom about making sure that the address was a public record because Kyle Rittenhouse is concerned about his safety and the safety of his family. If his address is made public. And I think the prosecutor also agreed to that because the person now living in his apartment, he's concerned about that person uh, who, who has uh, Kyle Rittenhouse's old address. So clearly there is um, some level of a safety concern out there by the prosecutor for the person living at the address and Kyle Rittenhouse for himself. So why wouldn't a prosecutor just agree that, hey, OK, let's just not make it public, but we can seal it with the court? Well, at the end of the day, Vinny, what what his most what his concern is exactly what you're talking about. And that was actually part of the things, part of his argument as to why he wanted the bond raised. He felt that the, this, this idea that um, someone else was allowed to live at an address that Kyle Rittenhouse and his attorney were claiming he had received threats at was putting somebody else in danger and that he was only thinking of himself, wasn't concerned about other folks. So that was part of the concern. He wanted folks to understand that that address was no longer in play. There was a new address. But his biggest objection, Vinny, was not to the fact that they made it public, but what the judge did, Vinny, was he said that he wouldn't even give it over to the prosecutors. Right. He said that it's going to be over to the sheriff in Wisconsin, but he no longer lives in Wisconsin. The sheriff has no jurisdiction over him. So the idea that he would give it to the sheriff and secondarily, and I'm, and I'm arguing, I'm telling you what the prosecutor said, secondarily, to make the assumption that the prosecutor's office would put a person in danger, that they would allow this information to be put out, he took exception to that as well. So there, were, there was a double-edged sword there for the prosecutor. He was disturbed by the fact that the judge didn't trust the prosecutor's office to keep it secret when they said they would ultimately. And secondly, by putting it in the jurisdiction of the sheriff of Wisconsin, didn't, doesn't give them jurisdictional power over him while he's living someplace in Illinois. It all could have been avoided, though, if before the hearing, the prosecutor just agreed to have it under seal, and then he would have had the address. But he was playing hardball, and he went to court, and he lost. And, and then, he had other concerns. He had other concerns that he considered serious. Okay, yeah, but I just, I just, I just see a prosecutor. It looks like he's treating this thing a little differently, and and I, and I don't, and I don't like Isn't that. This, this case is different, Vinny. This case, this case has gotten national interest. Have you not seen Lady Justice? Lady Justice. We've seen it before. Lady We've Justice. seen this before. She's blind. Cases, and and actually, the judge made that statement. And it was an interesting sort of uh, uh, soliloquy on his part about it. He's going to treat this case like every other case. But, She's blind. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's difficult when cases are not like every other case. They're different. All right. Let me ask you about something else that happened during the hearing. And um, I, 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 I feel bad. I mean, Anthony Huber's father, he, this man, his, his heart has been ripped out of his body with the loss of his yes, son. And you and I both know what the relationship between fathers and son uh, means. Um, and he's lost that. Uh, but he's in on these hearings. And when the ruling went the other way, um, 
on the screen, it was clear to me at the moment it was happening. He flipped the bird. Mm-hmm. On, uh, it was a Zoom hearing, so I don't know who's looking at what at the time. Uh, afterwards, I think people picked up on it. We clearly saw it when it happened. Um, but here's my concern. Not about locking up Mr. Huber or holding him in contempt, but that's my fear is that there needs to be a victim advocate that's working more closely. And I think this whole COVID thing may have uh, interrupted that, but he needs to be working with a victim advocate because I don't want to see Mr. Huber get into trouble. And, and whether we're at a trial when he's saying or doing something in the courtroom or, or somewhere else, because uh, to me that would, that would multiply this tragedy so many times. What are your thoughts about um, what happened in that hearing and, and maybe some proactive work by the victim advocate in Kenosha? Yeah, well, uh, Wisconsin subscribes to Marcy's Law. Marcy's Law allows victims to have an opportunity to be notified and speak at all these hearings, right? Um, so both Gage Grosskreutz and Anthony Huber's dad were there. He's been there every time. Um, he made a passionate speech, which showed definitely, and, and we've seen him a couple of times, Vinny, he's, he's angry and he's hurt. And, 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 he's, and you know, the, the images of seeing this young man Rittenhouse out, having a good time, having a beer, um, you know, doing what he was doing with the people he was doing it with really rubbed him the wrong way. He expressed that. But I agree with you. <clears throat> he has every right to do that. And they're given the opportunity to speak at these things. But his words are getting more and more um, angry. Uh, he is clearly hurt. And again, like you said, I do not know if he is working with a victim advocate, if he is getting any help for the feelings that he's having. But certainly, um, when you see that type of anger um, under the circumstances, you, 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 you know, we've seen enough to know that those things can lead to further tragedy. And, and we do not want that to happen. And anything that can be done to stop further tragedy, I ascribe to that. So I'll agree with you. Yeah, hopefully, he's getting the help he needs, and if he's not, he probably should. Yeah. I mean, every trial we cover, there are victims' families, and it's such a difficult process to go through. But this one is extremely raw, and the, and the case is moving at a rapid pace. I mean, right now, there's still a trial date in March. I mean, I expect mm-hmm. it to get pushed a little bit, but I think this is on a fast track. So I think we're going to be at trial and everything is still going to be very raw because many times in the, in the trials we cover, you know, it's been two years, three years, four years, sometimes eight years. Um, but this one is going to be quick. You know, we've seen that a lot, Vinny, right? I mean, even with the George Floyd case, I mean, it's, 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 gone. I mean, it's moving at a very fast pace. These cases that have captured the public imagination for whatever reason, uh, positive or negative, um, I think they want to get these things moved through so the country as a whole can move past these things, um, um, perform some form of justice, whatever that determines, whatever the courts determine that is, and from that point, move forward. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think it's a good thing, Vinny. I think hope pushing these cases further and further out allows for um, things to happen. People lose track. Um, we've seen, I've seen time and time again, the longer cases get away from the actual incident, um, decisions and things start being made and people are losing track of it. And maybe justice is not done in the same way. So, you know, let's get these things to the forefront. Uh, the people themselves have moved these things to the forefront. Let's get them adjudicated and let's get justice done, whatever that is. Well stated. Michael Ayala, Court TV anchor. Awesome job. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it always. You're welcome, buddy. Have a good day. All right. When we come back and Michael mentioned it, you know, he, he teed it up. 
the other big, big trial that we're covering, the first mega trial of 2021, which is just, uh, you know, just around the corner here, the George Floyd murder case. A lot of developments there, and the biggest development is what Michael was talking about, which is the speed and how rapidly this case is approaching. Court TV legal correspondent Julia Janae will join me with all the latest as we get ready for the George Floyd murder case. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. The George Floyd murder case, murder trial. This I cannot undersell to you how big this case is, how big this trial is, and how many people will be watching and reacting to everything that happens. And it's unbelievable because we are in Minnesota. And I've been at Court TV a long, long time. And we have never done a case in Minnesota because their rules don't permit it. This is the exception. And it's the exception for many reasons. You know, we're in the midst of this pandemic, but it's a, a story, a case, a trial we know the world needs to see because of how the death of George Floyd transformed so many things. Let me bring in Court TV legal correspondent Julia Janae, who has been covering this story from the beginning, has been out to Minneapolis. Uh, let me start here, Julia Janae. The, to me, the biggest headline is that this trial is happening. March 8th is the date. We are going forward, despite many attempts to stop it. How did this happen? Hey, Vinny, thanks for having me on. This is, I feel like, unprecedented when it comes to how hard the state tried to delay this trial. We see defendants try and delay and ask for continuance. They need more time to work on it. But the prosecutors in this case are going to be headed to this trial having just heard the word deny over four times on whether or not this trial should go forward. So, yes, there have been layers to what the state has tried to do to delay it. But as of now, we are less than three weeks out. This trial is going forward. And we're talking about the first trial because there are now two. We've got uh, the first one, Derek Chauvin, who is the, the man with his knee on George Floyd's neck. His case will go first. And the results of this case will certainly impact what happens to that second case. Absolutely. There's no way that it cannot. If it's guilty or not guilty, it's going to impact whether or not those cases even go forward or what the strategy will be going forward with the case of Tutal, Thomas Lane, and J. Alexander King. Theirs are set for August 23rd, but they are paying very close attention to what happens in Derek Chauvin's case. Now, the four ways the state tried to delay this, they first asked for a continuance. They were denied. The judge said, no, it's not going to be continued. And we're going to sever this case, even though it was joined before. So that's when it happened. Just January 11th of this year is when these cases got severed. They asked for a motion to reconsider. The judge denied it. They appealed it to a higher court. Court of Appeals said, we're not hearing it. You still have to go forward. Then they tried to get a third-degree murder charge reinstated from back in the fall that was already dropped. That was also 
denied. So not only are they going forward earlier than they wanted, they're going up against just one defendant when they wanted four. And they also made arguments that this is going to be a super spreader event, right? Yeah, that was their initial argument before the cases were severed. They said, look, COVID-19 is serious. The vaccine is real now. We know people can get vaccinated. So we want the public to have more time to get vaccinated. All the people who will be outside protesting, which we do anticipate there's going to be hundreds and thousands of people who will be interested in being outside. Uh, they felt very strongly and brought in a lot of medical experts trying to argue that this case needs to be moved to the summer, but that did not happen. And you're, you know, as it relates to COVID and the thousands of people that you talked about, there's a lot of precautions that they're taking in, in preparing for this. You know, they, did, they didn't react well to the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. We saw what happened. But it seems that lessons were learned and they're thinking ahead now. They are really thinking ahead. They are preparing for this like no other trial, I am sure, for Minneapolis. Um, the National Guard is in place. The governor has put in place these precautions that are going to make sure that if there is civil unrest, that there will be protection. The court is having to take into consideration their jury. How are the jurors going to get into the courtroom, courthouse, without being seen, without being harassed? The defendants, they're all out on bond. We know it's just going to be Derek Chauvin who will be showing up every day, but how is he going to be transported into the courthouse? The media, how are we going to be protected when we are on the ground uh, with a lot of people who will be around? So it is something that is being considered. There's money that's being allocated, millions, just to make sure that Minneapolis is taken care of and the damage is accounted for. Now, the trial date is March 8th. Now, I have not spent a lot of time in Minneapolis. I was, um, I believe, there once at the mall. The Mall mm, of America? Yeah. I, I, I think that's in Minneapolis, but I'm not sure. Anyhow, how I, I think it's going to be pretty cold, right, when this trial oh, starts. Yes. So that could be, you know, somewhat of a deterrent for crowds lingering. They could still gather, but I can't imagine them being out there for 12 hours. I mean, that's like really cold for 12 hours. Okay, you sound kind of like the defense attorneys now. That's one of their arguments on why this should have gone forward. But I'm going to tell you why both sides have something different on that issue. The defense, when they were trying to come against the state saying that this should still go forward, they don't have a right to slow it down. The defense said, hey, there won't be as many people when it's cold and that if this gets moved to the summer, there's actually going to be more people and the summer will be around the anniversary of George Floyd's death. But the state says, if it's cold, people are still going to show up, but they'll be huddled together trying to get warm that they're going to as soon as maybe court is in recess or things aren't happening outside they're going to go inside to spaces they shouldn't be in they're going to be huddled together and that's actually going to cause it to spread more and they got real scientific with it and said COVID-19 spreads faster in cold temperatures interesting interesting but uh, nonetheless we're going forward so we'll see how that all plays out at, at the end of the day the bottom line is folks can stay at home and just watch the trial on court tv I mean, that's the best way because you're going to see and hear all the evidence. You'll see the testimony. You'll hear the arguments. And ultimately, uh, you'll hear the verdict. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about the charges now. It, so third degree, they tried to bring back, but that's out. So what exactly are the charges that Chauvin is facing and what are the penalties for those charges? Derek Chauvin is facing second degree unintentional murder and he's facing second degree manslaughter. 
40 years, up to 40 years in prison as a punishment for second degree unintentional murder and up to 10 years in prison for second degree manslaughter. The other three officers who are charged with aiding and abetting each of those two charges, they face up to the same amount of penalty in prison if they are convicted of that charge. All right. And as we get folks prepared for this case, it, it seems there's two two avenues of, of evidence that I see being the main the main focus here. The the video, the obviously the video, but it's actually videos because you're talking about body cams, cell phones, all of that. Right. And then on the other hand, you're going to have experts, experts talking about cause of death, experts talking about police procedure and use of force. So um, how is that stacking up right now? I, I know there's been some witness lists, lists that are floating around um, as, as we look at this. How much of this is going to be a battle of the experts versus watching the videos, which we've shown on court TV, uh, that the jury will also look at? Well, you mentioned witness list. i got to show you what I have in front of me. I have the defense witness list and the state's witness list. The defense has 211 names on theirs. Uh, the state's 360 names. Who knows if they'll get to all of those, but an enormity of people that they feel like are important to this case that they may want to call. And that includes bystanders, medical professionals, law enforcement uh, officers, just so many different types of witnesses that they want to call in this case. And when you talk about experts, I mean, the medical experts, that's the crux of this case. If you don't have cause of death, then regardless of what's on the video, it's going to be hard to get over that. However, I anticipate they'll be using them in conjunction. It won't just be about the medical experts where you have the Hennepin County medical examiner um, on the state side and then the defense expert refuting his cause of death, but they'll also be talking about what they see in the video and how that impacts their medical conclusion. And these jurors will have to do the same because cause of death isn't going to be purely scientific. We have several medical examiners who have looked at this case. They come up with different answers. So if the medical examiners don't agree, then the video has to come into play as well to look at what that may mean and who that may support. Yeah, this is going to be uh, fascinating because you've got the cause of death, but then you're also going to have the the training and use of force. Like, how do you subdue someone? What's What is he trained to do? Uh, what did he actually do that day? And is that um, and how do you get inside the mind of Derek Chauvin? Right. Because for the for the murder charge, you've got to get inside his mind. You've got to, He's got to be acting intentionally. He needs to be intentionally uh, committing a crime, assaulting Derek Chauvin, because the unintentional murder uh, in Minnesota is, is, is like uh, felony murder in other states. So somehow mm -hmm. they're going to have to convince this jury what's in Chauvin's mind. And what's going to be key for the state is they are able to bring in two prior incidents of Derek Chauvin, where he was arresting other people and there was some kind of force that was used that was similar to how he restrained George Floyd. One of them, he restrained a man. He was with other police officers and they had him on his stomach and a neck restraint of some sort, but they turned that man over after a period of time, after he stopped struggling and he was able to be saved by medical professionals, even though he was having an episode and having some issues with drugs. They say, the state says that that shows his mode of operation and that he had knowledge of what you were supposed to do in that situation. 
and that he didn't do that on May 25th, 2020 with George Floyd. So that's going to be huge for the state in trying to prove knowledge. But the defense also has those training videos that show the use of this type of restraint, this neck restraint where the person is prone, knee is on or near the neck. And they will say that is what he operated under in his over a decade on the force. You know, in the murder trials that we cover at Court TV, we, we spend a lot of time, oftentimes, talking about motive because of the nature of, of a lot of the cases that we cover. I'm curious, has the prosecution in any of their court filings kind of tipped their hand on, on what they will argue, if anything? Because they don't have to prove motive. It's not an element of the crime. As to why Derek Chauvin would want to commit a crime in full view of the public while his body cam is rolling and cell phone cameras are rolling, why he wanted to assault George Floyd? You know, they tipped their hand only in the complaint, I would say, the the initial criminal charges that they filed. So this may have changed. It's been many months, and there's been more evidence that has come out since then. But it's as if they are looking at George Floyd being on the ground and seeing those bystanders and not wanting to react, that that shows the brazen nature of what they were doing, that that almost goes to the motive, that the fact that they would do this in front of those people, that's what makes this the crime. Now, it, it doesn't, so they aren't going to be able to argue it in that way. That's not um, unintentional murder. They have to show that he intended to assault George Floyd. But bringing in that long list of complaints, they tried to get in eight or nine not just the two. Two is only how many the judge allowed. But they want to show this was a pattern. This was something that Derek Chauvin liked to do, that he got rough with people, that he uh, didn't wait and keep a cool head in situations, but that he was brazen in the way that he policed. All right, folks, March 8th, gavel-to-gavel coverage, cameras inside the courtroom, Julia Janae reporting from Minneapolis. It's all happening. Thank you, Julia. Thanks, Vinny. All right, folks, there you have it. Three big, mega, mega cases that we're covering on Court TV. And, of course, uh, big developments. And you can see it all, you know, every night on Court TV and during the day as well. Uh, My show is on from 8 to 11, but our gavel-to-gavel coverage is all day. Now, Court TV, yes, you listen to the podcast, but if you want to watch us on television, if you have a digital antenna, just rescan it. That's all you need to do. Rescan that digital antenna. And a pretty good chance that you'll be able to find Court TV. In the meantime, if you want any more information on any of these stories, check the show notes. We've got incredible links. <sighs> I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. My day's just starting, folks. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Um, as always, I'm Vinny Politan. Uh, we'll see you next time. Have a great week. And don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.